You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 6. You have the book of Joshua, then the book of Judges. We uh, started last week just a little short series where we're taking a look at some people in the Old Testament that God used mightily. Matter of fact, God used these people beyond their capabilities. In fact, they didn't bring a whole lot to the table. So we're calling this some great comebacks, and today we're going to look at Gideon. Today we're going to look at Gideon. Uh, next week, Elijah. The week after that, we're going to look at Hezekiah. And then we are going to embark on uh, a study that I haven't done. I've been here almost 10 years, and uh, I have not preached through this book. So after we get done with Hezekiah, we're going to launch into the book of Revelation for several weeks. And yes, I approach that book with fear and trembling. Uh, I've been spending the last several weeks digging into that book, and uh, it's it's challenging. So I hope that uh, we can learn a lot, glean a lot from God's Word, not only today, but also in the weeks to come. Judges chapter 6, let's pick it up in verse 11. We're going to learn about a guy by the name of Gideon. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did, you, did not the Lord bring us up? From Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy, and we thank you for the opportunity to get into your word today. Give us wisdom, give us guidance, but more than anything, Father, we we long to hear your voice. And Father, when we look at the lives of the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see a lot of similarities between us and them. And Father, we're reminded that what you taught them, what you took them through, is not something just relegated to the past. It has direct impact on our walk with you today. So, Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable unto you. We ask it in the strong and powerful name of Christ. Amen. There was a time back in middle school, and yeah, that's been a while, that would strike fear into my heart every time, without fail. We would go to the gym. Maybe it was raining outside. We couldn't go outside. So we went to the gym for recreation time to play and have some fun. And the teacher or the coach or whoever's leading that session would say these words, okay, so-and-so, so-and-so, you come forward and pick two teams to play basketball. Now, there's a reason that struck fear into my heart, because I am the world's worst basketball player. Trust me when I tell you, I am not embellishing. I am awful, terrible. So here I am, the awkward middle schooler that I am, and I know what's about to happen. What's about to happen is going to be the confirmation for everybody in the room that we already know the answer to. 
because they're going to pick the two basketball players that play the best, and those two people are going to pick the teams. This morning in my morning service, that was Haley George. If you know Haley George, she is a star basketball player. So imagine Haley George comes forward, and she's got to pick a team, and you know what she's going to do. Same thing I would do if I could play basketball. I'm going to pick the best players I can pick, so I've got my team stacked. Guess who is standing in that crowd that is not going to get picked to the very end? And it happened all through elementary school, middle school. It happened every time. Everybody knew. They were playing basketball. That's the guy you don't want on your team. And if I needed any further confirmation on it, it happened almost every week in school that I was confirmed to be the worst basketball player. Because you know what happens? They get down to the last few kids. And here's Haley George, and she's got a pick, and she's like, I know I don't want Blabber. I know I don't want him. So let me look at the other kids and say, okay, at least, at least she can dribble the ball. He can't, so I'm going with her. So you get down to the last few kids, and then lo and behold, however it falls, I'm going to end up on somebody's team, and it will be a train wreck for whatever team I end up on. But what's amazing to me and what I love about God's Word is it seems to me as though God, over and over again, looks through all of the star players right to the guy like me standing at the back of the line, hoping that nobody sees me. Have you ever noticed that all through the Bible, over and over again, God has this, well, tendency to pick the most broken people to do what God's called them to do and to give them a task and a mission that quite frankly, nobody in this room would have picked. If you went out to pick your star team to, to launch a company, to, to play basketball, there's a whole bunch of people in Scripture that you would have never even considered. It's, it's the guy in the back or the lady in the back who's got their head down. They have very little courage in that particular situation. They're, they're not the ones standing up front when the teams are being picked because they know they have nothing to offer. Judges is the next phase of God's work in the nation of Israel. If we go back to the book of Joshua right before this, what do we have? We have Joshua, who's been trained under Moses, and both of those guys were nobodies. Both of them. Think, for example, Moses was a murderer on the run, and had been on the backside of the desert for almost all of his life, herding the sheep, staying away from Egypt because he was a wanted man. God comes to Moses and says to Moses, Moses, you're my guy to go back to Egypt and lead two million plus people to freedom. Moses is like, really? Me? Of all people. Joshua was a nobody. And Moses took Joshua under his care. And Joshua was there with Moses with all those key moments. And eventually Moses dies and Moses hands off the leadership to Joshua. And Joshua's like, really, me? I can't lead the people. I can't lead this nation like you led them. I can't be like you. Well, Joshua takes the reins of leadership reluctantly. And all through the book of Joshua, what do we have? We have this nation under Joshua's leadership going into a foreign land and taking the land as God had promised them. Now, in that land was armies and fortified cities. And Joshua leads these people to begin taking the city and taking the land as God had promised them. Well, then we fast forward in Joshua's life, and Joshua is about to pass off the scene. So Joshua brings the people together. He looks at them, and he says, now, choose this day who you're going to serve, because I'm going to die. 
Choose today who you're going to serve. You know what the people said? The people said, we're going to serve God. We're going to love him. We're going to continue to follow him. We're going to continue to do his will. Joshua dies, passes off the scene. Then we get into the book of Judges. And almost immediately in the book of Judges, we have a serious problem. The first thing we notice is that the nation of Israel stopped going to battle. They stopped taking the land. The second thing we see them doing is they begin to marry into the families of the people who were living in the land. And God had told them very clearly, Joshua had told them, and they had promised that they would never do that. Now, why was God so serious about that? Well, the problem is, is that when they marry into these tribes, they take the gods of those tribes. And those tribes worshiped Baal, a false god. God knew that if his people aligned with those families, that they would begin to live just like those families. Well, in the book of Judges, in the early chapters, we have this phrase that comes up. The people did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, the people took a vacation. The people began to live for comfort rather than God's will and purpose. The people began to take it easy. The people began to just live right alongside the people of the land. And guess what? The nation of Israel began to worship a false god. So in the book of Judges, what we have is the nation who is living in disobedience to God. So God says, okay, I'm going to bring some punishment into your life. So, so God brings these tribes, these people like the Midianites that we're getting ready to learn about, and they begin to just drive the Israelites in the ground. They begin to steal from them, destroy their crops, burn their homes. God's using them as judgment. The people, for a moment, turn back to God under the leadership of a judge that God would raise up. Gideon is one of those judges. He's the fourth in the book of this cycle of the people sinning, the people lamenting the pain that they're in, God raising up a leader, and then that leader leading the people to repentance and prosperity, at least for a season of time. Gideon is the guy that no one would have ever picked. If you're wanting to lead a military movement, if you're wanting to, to lead the nation, this guy in our eyes, in human eyes, would have been the last guy you would have ever picked. I, I believe Gideon is just a good guy. I think he's just a guy who just keeps his head down, does his job, and is just trying to get through life. I think Gideon is the guy who's just trying to, to get along, to go along, to get along. I, I think Gideon is the guy who doesn't want to rock the boat. I think Gideon is the guy who's just trying to take care of his family. Gideon is the guy with his head down. Gideon is the guy who, av who avoids conflict at all costs. Gideon is the guy, when he looks at his life, he doesn't see much to brag about. Gideon is the guy standing in the back. But yet God is the type of God who picks guys like Gideon. Why does he do that? Why does God pick those guys? Why did God pick Moses? Why did God pick Deborah, which is in the same book? Why does God pick Ruth? Why does God pick Rahab? Why does God pick David? Why does God pick Peter? Why did Jesus call Peter to follow him? Jesus, Peter was a train wreck. Emotionally, spiritually, every, every way you can measure it, he's a train wreck. But yet Jesus says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Is it possible that, that God sees something in us that we don't see ourselves? You see, I'm convinced, as I read Scripture, that God sees potential in you 
that you've never been able to even recognize yet. And I would also add that in the kingdom work that God has before you as a follower of Jesus, you've not begun to live up to the potential that God sees in you because you are in a place of making excuses. Or fear has you sidelined. So why does God pick those people? Why does God pick you? Why does God pick me? When everything seems as though we have nothing to offer. Well, let's take a look at Gideon's life and we'll see some answers. Now the angel of the Lord came and said unto the terabith at Oprah. So here we have this angel coming down and speaking with Gideon. God has a message for him. Now Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So let me tell you a little about, about, about these Midianites. These Midianites were people who were living in the promised land. They were ruthless. They were killers. They were thieves. They were this roaming band of, of bandits who would go from tribe to tribe and town to town, burn it to the ground, steal all your food. They lived off of thieving from other people. That's who they were. And they struck fear into every tribe and every group of people, especially the Israelites, because apparently the Israelites were the favorite beating ground of the Midianites. The Midianites loved to beat down the Israelites. The Israelites are scared to death. Gideon is scared to death. That's why we find him threshing wheat in a wine press. Now let me explain what's going on. Gideon has got to feed his family. Gideon has got to feed himself. Well, they live in an agricultural atmosphere. Everything that they eat comes from the field and from the animals that they slaughter. So here's Gideon. He's got to feed his family, but he's got to also protect his family from this band of thieves. So, so Gideon comes up with an idea. He says, I'm going to thresh my wheat. What that basically means is the wheat that's taken out of the harvest, taken out of the field, has to be separated. The part that they eat has to be separated from the part that you can't eat. So in Israelite culture, what they would often do is they would go up on a hillside where the wind is blowing. And they would take a sickle and they would throw this wheat up in the air to separate the seeds from the leaves and from the stalks. The wind would blow the stalks away. The seed would fall back to the ground. So the, the normal place to thresh wheat would be on a hillside where everybody could see you. But where do we find Gideon? He's in a wine press. It's a hole in the ground. And he's standing down in this hole in the ground where they would normally crush grapes to get the juice. He's down there trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. And trust me when I tell you, this would have had been a frustrating process, but this is the only option he's got if he wants to feed himself and his family. So he's living in fear. He's just trying to get by. He's really trying to survive. But fear rules his life. The angel of the Lord, verse 12, appears to him and says to him, now listen to how the angel refers to this guy who's scared to death in a wine press. He says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. You see that word valor? <laughs> the angel looks at Gideon, and trust me, there's nothing about this situation that screams valor. There's nothing about this situation that screams, hey, here's a military leader. There's nothing about this situation that screams that, that Gideon is a man of courage. Everything about this situation says that Gideon is a coward. So, just like in the middle school, and I'm standing in the back, it would be like the, the captain of the team, the best basketball player, one of the best basketball players we've got, stepping out and saying, hey, Blackburn, you're the best player we've got. Come forward. No, 
That's not me. You must have mistaken me for somebody else. The angel says, mighty man of valor, God is with you. By the way, obedience and God with you, God with you and obedience with you is a majority in any situation. Did you get that? You, God living in you, and you surrendered to him, you're a majority. I don't care what situation you're in. I don't care what you have to face. That's a majority. You and God, no one else. He will follow through. He will, he will be faithful to you in that moment. And what we're going to see is he'll prepare you for what he's called you to do. So Gideon says, wait a minute, who, me? Verse 13. And Gideon said, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? So not only is Gideon afraid, Gideon also has some very serious doubts about whether God is even part of this or not. Gideon looks around and he says, okay, if, if God is with us, if God is with me, then why are the Midianites stealing everything we have? Why has all this happened? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Gideon had other stories of God parting the Red Sea, of God leading Joshua across the Jordan River, of the walls falling around these cities as God led the people. So in Gideon's mind, God must have changed his mind. God must have checked out because if God is here, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. I wouldn't be in this wine press right now. So not only is Gideon afraid, but his belief in God, his faith in God is weak. Verse 14 after Gideon says that the Lord has forsaken him, the angel comes back and says, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. Are we starting to have a, a breakdown here in reality? This angel's calling Gideon a man of valor. This angel's calling Gideon a mighty man in this might of yours. What do we have going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. The perception that Gideon had of himself and the perception, the insight that God had of Gideon is two different things. Gideon sees himself as a zero. Gideon sees himself as having nothing to offer, that the problem's too big, and I have nothing to give, so I'm just going to try to put my head down, and I'm just going to try to get by. And some of you have been living out your faith in Jesus just like that. You're just going through trying to get through another day. You are not experiencing the blessings of God because you're not being obedient to the God who's called you to do something in his kingdom work. So what do you do? You just get by. You go alone to get along, don't rock the boat. You try to live out your life the best way you can. Gideon sees a big difference between what the angel is saying and how he sees himself, and so do you. Your self-perception and how God sees you is on two different islands. And in that gap in between, between what God is calling you to do, what God sees in you, versus what you see in yourself, you know what happens in that gap in between those two places? Fear and excuses. Listen to what he says, verse 15. He says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. It sounds like something like this to us. Oh, you don't know how I was raised. Oh, you don't know what kind of family life I had. I had horrible parents, or I had a horrible dad, or I had an absentee mom, or I had an alcoholic sister or brother, and I had all these problems in my life. Or, or this, look, I've made some mistakes in my past. There's no way that God could use me now. Or, hey, I was addicted. Or, hey, I've got a broken marriage. Or, hey, my kids have walked away from the faith. And I'm a nobody. God can never use me. The excuses go on and on and on. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough training. I've never been to seminary. 
What's your excuse in that gap between what God has called you to do and how you see yourself? Because what we're going to see in Gideon's story, ultimately, what God sees is what really matters. God sees a man of valor. God sees a mighty man who can do the works he's called him to do if he'll simply be obedient. But what's pro- the problem is, is he has a faulty self-perception. So Gideon needs a little bit of affirmation. I mean, an angel from heaven talking to him apparently is not enough. So he, he says to the angel, how can I be sure that you're the real deal? So the, the angel says, well, hey, let, let's, let's just have a, a showdown here and I'll show you who I am. So Gideon goes and prepares cakes and prepares meat, prepares a whole meal for him, brings it out to this angel, sets it on a rod. The angel strikes the rod. The angel catches, or the rod catches on fire, burns up the entire meal. And Gideon's like, okay, well, I guess you are who you say you are then. What is Gideon's next step? Is, is God now going to take Gideon? Because this angel has told Gideon, hey, you're a mighty man of valor. Is Gideon now going to go take a sword and go face the Midianite army? Do you think God's going to take him from that place and say to him, look, Gideon, you are going to overthrow the Midianites. Do you think God's going to take him from that moment, take him right over and drop him as a military leader into a fight? He's not going to. Whatever God's calling you to do, God has also promised to empower you and equip you to do what he's called you to do. Notice what happens next, verse 25. So God's going to give Gideon a task to perform. Now this task is going to cost him something. It's going to be something he's going to have to sacrifice. It's not a big a task as going and facing a Midianite army, but make no mistake about it, God is going to call Gideon to a task. And the question is, is Gideon going to be obedient? Verse 25, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. Folks, we, in our culture, we can't, we can't really wrap our arms around how serious this is. I wonder if in this moment Gideon wouldn't have rather faced a Midianite army than face what he's got to face here. In that statement, we get a little insight into what's happening in the Israelite nation. His dad, Gideon's father, who is an Israelite, a Hebrew, has set up at their home an altar to a false god. Now, we talked about this when we walked through the book of Jeremiah, how that the nation turned themselves away from God and began to build altars and offer sacrifices to a false god. What's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no what? Other gods before me. The very first commandment, right out of the gate, God says, no other gods before me. And his people have turned to false gods. Not only that, but to see how personal this is, they've set up altars at their home. So God says to Gideon, hey Gideon, the first thing I want you to do, the first step of faith I want you to make, the first step of trust is for you to go to your father's house and tear down that altar. If you look through scripture, if you look through Gideon's life, David's life, Moses' life, the disciples, here's what you'll find. God calls a person to perform a task in God's kingdom work. And what God does is says, okay, here's your first step. 
Here's your, here's your first step, and I'm asking you to trust me in this first step. I want you to take a step with me in trust. Now, this is going to lead to some other things I'm going to ask you to do. You're not ready for those things yet, but I'm going to ask you to do this thing. And get this, God says, Gideon, I want you to go home. There's something in your home you've got to deal with before you're ready to go do what I've called you to do. There's something inside your home that is broken that needs to be corrected. Will Gideon be faithful? Be faithful? Or will Gideon revert back to that place between God's call and his fears? Gideon goes to his father's house. Look at verse 27. It says, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. God didn't give him any instructions on that. So Gideon says, okay, I'm going to try to do this with the least amount of pain as possible. We'll do it at night. So Gideon goes at night, goes to his dad's house, takes these two bulls, pulls the altar down. There's also a pole there called an Asherah pole that they used to worship a false god. He tears that down. He takes all the wood that was left, piles it up as kindling, builds an altar to Jehovah God, and gets this, offers one of the bulls on the new altar to Jehovah God in the same place that the altar was built to Baal. And you can imagine that the town is not going to be too happy about that. So all of a sudden, people come out the next morning, and the smoke of a sacrifice is going up, an altar built to Jehovah God, and they're upset. And they call out to Gideon's dad and say to him, bring your son out. We're going to put him to death. We're going to kill him. So this step of faith that God has asked Gideon to make before he gets to the task that God has called him to accomplish has the potential to cost Gideon everything. As I've walked with Jesus since I was 16, I have found times in my life where God's called me to something. And when you hear me use that term, called, don't think of being called to the pastor. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that every believer of Jesus, every follower of Jesus has work to do in the kingdom. And you have been set apart for a specific task in that kingdom work. And God is going to continue to put that in front of you and ask you to trust him to do what he's called you to do and equipped you to do. But for many times in my life, when I looked at what God was putting in front of me, and I looked at the resources I had, I came to a conclusion. I don't have anything to offer. I also came to another conclusion. I'm too afraid. And I'm not happy to tell you this, but there were times in my life where my walk with Jesus suffered simply because I wouldn't be obedient to what Christ had put in front of me. So I get into this place of just stagnant. You know water when it's not moving? You know water that's in a, a pool and it sits there for a long time, it gets kind of smelly? Stagnant water? Well, guess what your faith does when it's not tested? And it gets kind of smelly. Faith that doesn't have works accompanying with it. Faith that doesn't take us out of our comfort zone. Faith that doesn't challenge us. Faith that doesn't cause us to really count the cost. Is no faith worth having? So if you put your faith in Jesus and you started a walk with him, your walk didn't end at the moment you've prayed that prayer. That walk didn't end the moment you come up out of the baptistry. The Lord has a work for you to do. And far too often we spend time making excuses or living in fear rather than being obedient. Gideon was obedient in this moment. And I'm impressed by what his dad says. 
Look at verse, uh, look at verse 30. Then the men of the town said to Joash, this is Gideon's father, bring him out that we may kill him. Joash says this, bring out your son. Well, Joash, they say this to Joash, bring out your son that he may die for when he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside him. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, then let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Here's what the father of Gideon says. He says to this crowd, hey, do you have to take up for your God? Is your God so weak that he can't take up for himself? In other words, if, if Baal is all that, if he's really a God, then here's my son. If my son's done something wrong, let Baal throw him down right now. Let, let Baal take him out right now. But you have to come out here and you have to make excuses for a false God? You see, what happens is that when Gideon puts his faith in God and does what God asks him to do, it just doesn't impact him, it impacts his dad. And so it is with you. Fathers, hear me well. Your faith in Jesus, your trust in Jesus reverberates through your entire family. Moms, your faith in Jesus reverberates through your family. All these families we just had on the stage, grandparents, your faith in Jesus is going to impact that child we just dedicated. Far more even than the local church. Did you get that? The way you follow Jesus, the way they watch you follow Jesus, the way you trust him with your resources, the way you do what he's called you to do, even when it costs you dearly, they're watching you. Gideon's dad had turned his back on God and built an altar. But in one moment of his son being faithful, one moment of radical trust in Jesus, or radical trust in God, Joash says, you know what? I've been wrong. My son is right. Could it be that when our kids watch our lives, they don't see faith? And could it be that that's the reason they're beginning to walk away from the faith? That if, that if Jesus makes no more difference in our life than what our kids see, that the, the faith in Jesus is nothing more than just going to church two or three times a month. If, if that's all of our kids see, should we really be surprised that when they have the opportunity to choose, they choose something else? Well, strong faith leads to strong faith in our families. Notice what happens. They're going down to verse uh, 34. So not only does it impact Joash, Gideon's father, but get this, it impacts the whole nation. But, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. And the Abiazites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they were called to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. So here it is. One guy pushes back on the system. One guy says, no longer am I going to worship a false god. We're going to tear the altars down. Guess what happens? All of these people start showing up to follow this guy named Gideon, the guy that you wouldn't have picked, the guy that would have argued with you saying that he's able to do anything on behalf of God. They're coming out of the woodworks now. They've heard what Gideon has done. Somebody's pushing back. Somebody is not just drinking the Kool-Aid. Somebody is actually saying that this is wrong. Well, we're going to join him. Gideon didn't set out to build a following. But that's exactly what God has done. God has brought 32,000 people to Gideon's side. You speak up 
on what is right and what is honest. You speak up, whether it be on your job, in your family, in your community, you speak up for what is right. Don't be surprised when God brings more people to your side to fight the battle with you. Matter of fact, that's what the church is for. That we stand arm in arm, never compromising on his truth, but moving forward the will of God through our lives. But notice also, not only has God brought some soldiers, the enemy is stirring as well. Look at verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and they encamped. They heard also that somebody's pushing back. And 135 soldiers show up. 135,000 have showed up in this valley ready to do battle. Chapter 7. Now we're going to see what God has called Gideon to do. Gideon is not ready for chapter 7 until he went to his house and dealt with the altar. Now God is going to expand what, what he has called Gideon to do. He's going to equip Gideon to do something that Gideon could not do on his own. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubal, Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. This is one of those moments in Scripture where you just have to sit back and absorb it. Because here's what's happening. Over some period of time, we don't know how much time passed between the time he tore the altar down and now God has brought these tribes of people to Gideon to lead. What we have here is Gideon has 32,000 soldiers. The enemy has 135,000. Well, Gideon, no doubt, as he's seen these people come around him, he begins to think, okay, God's will is working out. God is providing. God is giving me the resources to be able to overthrow the Midians. So you would, you would imagine that even someone put a disposition who maybe has no leadership experience, he's doing the math, right? 32,000 versus 135,000. Okay, what does that look like? Okay, that's four enemy soldiers against one Israelite soldier. Four to one. Could be a lot worse. I'm thinking that Gideon's thinking, man, I'm thankful it's not any worse than this. We might actually have a chance here. You know, God's going to help us out, but these 32,000 soldiers, maybe we've got some horses, maybe we've got some armor, maybe he's weighing it all out, and he's thinking, well, maybe all of the 135,000, maybe, maybe one out of those four are not really trained for battle, and maybe the other one doesn't have the right equipment, so maybe this, this battle might actually work out in our favor. He's working it all out. In his mind, he's working the ratios. In his mind, he's, he's taking an account of all the equipment they've got. In his mind, he's thinking about what chances do we have. Here's the problem. Gideon is focused on the wrong thing. Gideon is focused on what he can do with 32,000 men. So God steps in and says, hey, Gideon, your army's too big. Only in the Bible do you read stuff like this. Wait a minute. No, wait a minute. God, we've got 135,000 enemy. We're only 32,000. If anything, we're not big enough. He goes, no, you're not. You've got way too many soldiers. We need to, we need to weed them out because the last thing I want is for you guys to take credit for what I'm getting ready to do. You see, pride was already a problem in the nation of Israel. That's why they've turned to idols. The last thing God was going to do is allow Gideon and that 32,000 to take credit for what he was about to do. So 
Gideon, ask your men how many of them are afraid. So Gideon asked the 32,000, hey guys, how many of you are afraid? 22,000 raised their hands and walk away. That's a leadership failure if there's ever been one. 22,000 people pick up their stuff and walk away. What's left? 10,000 people. And you know they're all stressed out right now. You know Gideon is stressed out. So Gideon goes back to the drum. Or okay, we were at four to one odds. Now we're at 13 to one. You know, a, a bad situation just got a whole lot worse. Thank you, God. We really appreciate that. I thought we were here to win a battle. God says, oh, Gideon, we're not done yet. You still have too many at 10,000. So Gideon, take your men down to the water. And we're going to weed a few more out. Verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, set him by himself. Likewise, the others who kneel down to drink, separate them. So here's what happens. 10,000 people go down to the water to drink. The ones who lap the water are set over here. The ones who knelt down and were scooping the water, they're set over here. Here's what happens. The 300 that lap from the water, and there's all kinds of speculation as to why this determination is bad. I don't think it's important to the story. Here's the part, important part. The 10,000 is now whittled down to 300. So now we have 300 people against 135,000 troops. If you want to know what those odds are, that's 450 to 1. Every one of those 300 has got to kill or take out 450 soldiers in the enemy. Can we all just agree and all say collectively, in human terms, impossible. Gideon is throwing up his hands at this point. Gideon is like, there's no way that I can take 300 and fight 135,000. And God probably says in that moment, exactly, Gideon, that's the whole point. Because when this thing is said and done, and when the Midianites are destroyed, everyone who looks at this will know it's not because Gideon was such a great leader. It's not because he had a great army. It's because God showed up and God showed out and did exactly what he said he was going to do. And so it is in your life. Have you found out or have you learned on your journey with Jesus yet, have you learned that the only way to really bring glory to God is to not put your trust in something else? Have you come to that place in your walk with Jesus that, that every time you've ran to something else, in that moment of fear, in that moment where you don't have enough resources, in that moment when you're trying to take care of your family, but, but it seems like you're being run ragged and you've got nothing else to give, have you ever noticed how in those moments we tend to run to everything but Jesus? And every time we do, every time we do, God steps back into our life and he says, now look, have you not learned that that's not going to help? Have you not learned that all your chariots and all your horses and all your swords and all your military, that's not the point. The point is, are you going to trust me? Are you going to run to me when things go off the rails? Are you going to come to me? Or are you going to run to everything else first? And it's only when we run to him and we trust him that we bring the greatest glory to him. Oftentimes I hear people say, I want to do great things for God. And they're often disappointed in the answer I give them when I hear that. Oftentimes when we, we got a baptism on the 14th, and sometimes when we're dealing with young people, they go, oh, I'm, I'm going to do great things for God. That's wonderful. I hope you do, and I want you to. This church is here to stand by you as you do great things for God. But how do we do great things for God? How do, how do, we, how do we do that? Well, you're not going to like the answer. It's in the small things. Day in, day out, 
the disciplines of the faith. When's the last time you got into God's Word and actually read it? When's the last time you and God had a conversation? When's the last time that you were consistently plugged into a local body, the local church, and supported that church and served, gave of your talents and your abilities to progress the kingdom of God? Look, God is not going to take you to bigger things until you're faithful with the small things. And by the way, they're not small at all. Consistency in God's Word. Look, I would rather have you in God's Word 10 minutes a day, 7 days a week, than for this kind of what we call a spurting kind of discipline where, oh, I read it last month and then I hadn't touched it again until next month and then a week goes by and I might read six chapters but I didn't really read anything, I didn't study anything, and I didn't hear from God. I'd rather have you in the Word 10 minutes a day consistently over the next six months. It will change your life. There's men in this congregation that we've walked together, we stopped for the summer, we walked together in God's Word for about six months and those guys, I'm telling you, those guys' lives have changed. I've seen it. They don't know that I'm watching. That's kind of weird, isn't it? I'm not stalking you guys, but I'm noticing that God is up to something in your life. Consistency over time with the seemingly small things is what prepares us for us to accomplish God's will in our lifetime. Your life is passing by quickly. Isn't it time to quit staying in this middle place of fear and worry and doing nothing? When we stand before Christ, and we will, fear is not going to be a valid answer as to why we never did anything. Excuses are not going to work on that day. Jesus is going to say, look, I gave you time, I gave you resources, and I ask you to use those to do the work I've given you to do. God is going to bring the best out of you. God sees in you something you don't even see in yourself. You are extremely valuable. You have no idea how much value you have to the king. And God is going to bring something out of you that you don't even see. If and only if you'll trust him with it. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we'll close there. I want you to hear the ultimate answer as to why God chooses folks like us. Why does God choose the people he chooses to do the task in the kingdom work? Well, 1 Corinthians, Paul, who had an impressive resume. Paul had all the religious training you could possibly have. And one day he writes and he says that all of that is like manure. It's worthless. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul answers the question for us. He says, for consider your calling... Now, many of you are wise according to worldly standards. You may not have a PhD. You may not be able to name all the books of the Bible. It's okay. What Jesus is looking for is someone who will simply trust him. So it may be that you're not wise according to worldly standards. It may be that you're not very powerful. You weren't born of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish, and I've got that underlined right there, and I've got right above it a little heading that says, that's me, foolish. He's Paul's talking about me right here. That God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, 
to bring to nothing the things that are. Why would he do that? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in his presence. So God sees something in you that you don't see yourself. It's beautiful. It's powerful. God's wanting to develop that and bring that out of you. That your life will have purpose and meaning. So the question is, is what is your next step? What is your next step of faith? What, what is the one thing that God has put in front of you right now, and he's saying, I want you to do this. For some of you, that means putting your faith in Jesus for the very first time in your life and coming out of darkness into light. You've been putting it off. Today's the day of salvation. For some of you, maybe it's to pick up God's word consistently, not a New Year's Eve, you know, not a, not a New Year's plan, but just simply to take up the Bible and say, I'm going to start reading this. I need some help. That's what I'm here for. We've got countless people here who will help you walk through God's Word, understand it, and apply it. Maybe it's simply to have a conversation with God each day. Maybe it's simply to be faithful to the local church, whether you attend here and you're part of this fellowship or you're one in your hometown. What's your next step of faith? If you're making excuses to not do that next step, let me tell you where you are. You are stuck. And in that place... There's not a lot of joy and not a lot of peace. There's not a lot of purpose. And you'll begin to question, where is God in all of this? So the question you need to ask God this morning is, what is my next step? And do you trust him enough to take it? Father in heaven, we thank you for your story of Gideon, of a real man who lived in a real place, who did amazing, great things, not because he was great, but because you are great. And Father, there are people in this room and those watching online this morning that I believe you're calling to the international mission field to go overseas to spread the gospel. I believe there are people in this congregation and those watching online that you are calling into full-time vocational ministry. I believe there are people who you are calling to take the next step and simply commit to getting God's word and your word every single day. There are people sitting under the sound of my voice whose next step is to really actually put their faith and trust in you for the first time and become one of your children. Lord, the steps are numerous, but you are the same. Well, I pray that we could clear out all the clutter, hear your voice, and respond with faith. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, 